Welcome, everybody. The goal here for the series is exposure to people who are actually building businesses. And today we're joined by Christina Walkermeyer. Christina runs a, a company called Nuri. This time we're in the challenger bank space, new B2C financial services companies. They're starting to pop up all over Europe. And we're going to hear from a lady who became CEO almost by accident, almost unexpectedly. Christina, so thank you for being here. Could you give us a sort of two-line description of Nuri that improves on mine? So yeah, Nuri is a new bank that allows users to buy crypto from a German bank account. So we combine the traditional world of banking with attractive investment opportunities from the crypto and blockchain world. I know that your background was mostly in Germany in business studies, and then you went and ended up in the mobile territory. So you get a phone call from yes. uh, the guys at Bitwallet. I think the original call was nothing to do with running the place. It was a no. chief product officer role, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So he called me and said, hey, Christina, we're looking for a CPO. And my first question was, I was a little bit irritated. I said, what do you want from me? I don't have a background either in crypto <laughs> nor in blockchain. Like I'm not one, I'm not part of the scene. But he said, you know what, Christina, we have the geeks here in the company, but what right. we are lacking is someone who can build products for the masses and can help us, first of all, to understand the real user need and also like, help us to, to get structured and to get aligned and yeah, to make an actual plan. Because this is often the problem with people who are like very smart and they know theoretically what's possible and they get like sometimes lost in innovation and ideas. I felt sometimes there needs to be an add-on say, no, guys, no, we stay here now. No, this is our plan and we actually stick to it for a while. But also then combine it with a real user need. I think this is the, or was the problem often of blockchain or what you can still read, that blockchain is missing real world use cases. There's still a lot of like newspapers writing about that. Right. And to a certain degree, I can understand where this is coming from. Because often, yes, there is a lot of innovation, but if there's no market, your product is a hobby. And I think that's something that was missing because the knowledge was there. I think the, the innovation spirit was, is definitely there. And, but it was like to bring all of this together and actually yeah, make it a product with a user need. This is very common, though, in technology-led companies. How did that first conversation go? So you, you've had a, two or three walks for him. He's convinced you to come in as CPO. Then what happens? Yeah. So in the first conversations, I just really tried to learn, okay, what is the solution and how does it solve the problem? Because we had a lot of good conversations about the problems that I see or the, the user needs that I see, which are currently not solved. Why are people not investing and why are ETFs maybe great, but people are not investing in them, like not the mainstream at least. But then he also told me about it, like they had just launched the Bitcoin interest account, which was amazing. So you can actually get 4% of interest on your Bitcoin. And he said, now, Christina, I imagine we could build it without going the, the way around and go through Bitcoin, but we could cut out the volatility of a Bitcoin and do that with Euro. I was like, okay, yeah, man, how are we going to do it? And then we talked about like the technical possibilities, but I also told him, look, it's not so easy. Even if you launch this product and you put it out on the market tomorrow, people will not just use it because people are afraid specifically when it's about their money. And I think this is when we got lost in like long evening walks and conversations, like me coming, challenging him. I was like, okay, launching a product specifically if people fear to lose money, it's not so easy. Right. And but he told me like, what's theoretically possible. And I think then we understood this is a matchmaking heaven. And then I absolutely um, started to think that I should join them. And Sometimes, honestly, my head in between, because I had to break in between and a notice period. So there were a few months in between me talking to him and actually joining the company. And often, like, my brain told me, like, where do you do that? Like, you could just go to another larger company and make the typical career path. But I could really see my heart was pulling me there. And I felt there is something in it. And I think it's just really important to, to point out that often my rational head said no. 
But I think it's really good time sometimes with these decisions to listen to your heart, because I think my heart knew already that something was coming that my head was not ready yet. And I think that was important in that decision. Maybe we should spend just a minute on, just to clarify for people, the interest available on DeFi networks, so on distributed finance networks for different tokens is payable because the tokens are borrowed by other people uh, on a system that's through the blockchain. And that pays an interest because the demand for those tokens is higher than they would be for the fiat currency that it comes from. So in the case of your customers, mostly the euro. The one thing just to people, so that people understand, it's not magic. The volatility attached to tokens is one of the reasons that the interest rates are higher. You were going to say yeah. something about the, the hedge that you guys manage with euro? There, there's several ways how you could go about it. So for example, the, the Bitcoin interest account that we offer, we do um, indeed with a, a centralized partner called Celsius. And what they're doing is they're offering liquidity for Bitcoin, for example, to large institutions like market makers. Normally, you would just go to a bank. Ultimately, you cannot go to a bank to borrow Bitcoin or to get liquidity. So that's why they go through players uh, like Celsius. And this is how, how interest has been generated. I think it's very comparable then to a bank, like a bank and a savings account. If I put money in my savings account, I also get interest for it. And then the bank can actually work with it and borrow it out through credits, for example. Right. And I think one of the ways you guys deal with this is that you limit what coins your customers can invest in, and you try to secure and encourage understanding about the exchange rate risks that, that are within. And I think you're careful about what tokens you deal with. Absolutely. We have decided to go a direction to serve a mainstream target group. And I personally fundamentally believe that if you serve a mainstream target group, you have a certain social responsibility. And this also means that on the one side, we want to make it very easy and simple and rather focus on education and guidance so people know what they're doing. So we don't want to trick people into investments. But then on the other side, it's very overwhelming for people that want to get started with crypto. And then mainly they mean Bitcoin as a first step when you actually been presented with 150 different coins and been distracted and so on. So people often don't end up buying on those platforms, but come to us because it's focused on a main use case. And the third reason for that is as well that I couldn't sleep well in the night if I would encourage anyone to buy Dogecoin. You never know what, what's behind that. Or yes, maybe it sounds like an interesting project, but then there's nothing behind it. And I believe Bitcoin and Ethereum, they have um, the highest market capitalization. They have a certain amount of history. Bitcoin being so far the, the best performing assets of the past 10 years. Ethereum, I just fundamentally believe that it's the oil of the new internet because it just will enable so many use cases. It's programmable. It allows smart contracts. And I just believe there's so much to build on this platform that these two are the coins that we believe in. And as long as there is no other coin coming up that has that kind of relevance for a mainstream target group, we would not offer it. This might change in the future. Is it Ripple or is it Cardano? Now we don't believe it. <laughs> so that's why we don't offer it. And we'd rather focus now on building financial products that are as easy as a savings account from the outside, but then are basically fueled by new technology to offer better rates. And I now feel obliged to say that nobody should take this as investment advice. We're describing services provided by Nuri in Germany. So let's go back to Christina and, and Nuri. Did the name change happen after you arrived or is that something that they were in the process of doing? That was, that was you again, was it? So I tell you, when I uh, interviewed with them in March, April last year, they told me, hey, we have to change our logo. And then we thought we do maybe a slight rebrand. And when you come, like we probably have a little bit of different brand, like a different color or so. So I joined in September. I was like, guys, where is your new brand? And I said, yeah, we had workshops with an agency. And I was like, okay, but where is your new brand? Because they, they had a deadline where they had to change the logo. 
But then we actually said, hey, let's break this completely up. And in, initially we thought about going mainstream already. So that was definitely on the table. But the question was how. So we actually said, okay, let's take a step back. What do we actually want to do here? And we informed also on the one side, the product vision, where do we want to go? Because we decided not to go further to become just a crypto platform, so to say a trading platform, but we decided to go in a complete different direction because we understood the problem out there is way broader, right? It's in general, people need saving alternatives. That's the huge challenge we actually uh, put on our plate. And uh, therefore, we also thought, hey, Bitvala, the name is not very helpful here. Bitvala was our name before. And specifically, as we want to go more mainstream, we even want to go beyond crypto as such. We understood that Bitvala is often a conversation stopper and not necessarily a conversation right. opener. So if right. we would talk to a mainstream user and say, hey, I work at Bitvala, people are like, oh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> but yeah, and then we actually went down the rabbit hole of understanding who do we want to be? And uh, based on that, like we figured out what we're building is we see this new financial system at the horizon, even though we use our very traditional bank account to pay our bills. But what we're doing is we suddenly combine those worlds. We're not as naive and say, hey, come to the blockchain world tomorrow because it's already there. You don't need anything else. That's naive. We know that. But what we build is actually the new reality of banking. And then this is basically now where Nuri came along. Like Nuri is for us the abbreviation of the new reality of banking. And we right. fundamentally believe we're breaking down the barriers to enter this new world and guide our users, take them by the hand to actually go there step by step. Yeah, very cool. And, and just so that people have some sense of scale, over a quarter million customers, over 150 employees, over 350 million euros in assets on the management in the system. And so financial services for the general public offering alternatives to simply investing your fiat currency in a system which makes it decline every year, some risks associated with some of the tokens in the space, some concerns about some of the players in the space, but in essence, a new generation of customers deciding that this makes more sense to them than their traditional banks. So that, of course, worries the traditional banking space. Where do you think Nuri's going? In the old days, we used to divide up the banking space into the, there was banking services, then there was investment platforms, and then there was wealth management. And they were actually fairly separate. You're essentially doing all three in one. Where are you going with Nuri? Yes. So we always say we want to make growing your money as easy as spending it. Yeah. So this implies that we, of course, focus right now more on the growing your wealth part. And we do that through a variety of different products. We do with something in the ETF space. Now we do something in the DeFi space, crypto we have already. But then on the same page, we also always had a bank account together with our partner Solaris Bank. But we also want to put way more love into it and like really elevate it through the redesign. Now it came way more in the foreground. People start using it now. Now, since we rebranded 50, almost 50 percent of our users are now using both the bank and the wealth offering, which is amazing because it has not been like that beforehand. So we want to focus additionally also more in the spending part. But then the great thing about digital assets is once our customers hold a lot of digital assets with us in our custodian wallet setup, we can also start borrowing liquidity against it. So how this happens is basically you just freeze the digital assets and then customer customers can borrow liquidity against it. And then they have to pay them back until a certain deadline is on certain date and then you just release the funds again or you keep it right so that's also the great thing there's a lot of innovation it's a little bit like a lombard loan so you don't have to release all your assets to actually pay a downment for a house for example so there's also like use cases in the other direction but what then what i believe in the future what will make the difference is the tokenization of things in general 
there's so many great use cases now coming up, NFTs, art becomes now investable for everyone. But suddenly we can also differentiate between, for example, participating in the value increase of physical things, of, of digital assets, and we can differentiate it from the governmental part of the, the ownership itself. So I think there's a lot of new use cases that will come up soon, hopefully. Yeah, let's hold that thought for a minute. I want to come back to the tokenization of everything. What's the regulatory framework in which Nuri operates? Yeah, we're basically using the banking license of Solaris Bank as of today. So that allows us basically to focus on our main use cases for our financial products. We're also using the license framework of another partner that we cannot reveal as of today. So there are different partner license or partnerships that we actually go into in order to actually use their regulatory environment. However, of course, for us in the very like longer, mid or longer term, it also makes sense to, to maybe go on our own license just to have more flexibility. So you actually, Harvard many years ago, came up with a list of things that create stress in individual people's lives. They rank them on different ways. And so buying a house, moving country, getting a new job, all of these things were causes for stress in the life of an individual. I've done the same thing. I created a similar list for building a company. And you've got at least four of the things that are on my 10 things on the list. One of which is dealing with regulatory environments. Two is dealing with new technology. Three is dealing with a market with very big and aggressive competitors. And then four is the risk associated with some of the players on the fringe of the area. So there's lots of chatter about crypto which, and blockchain in general, which of course create a burden. The question for you is, given all the things you guys are dealing with, what are you finding that's particularly challenging these days? And then the second question, you can take these in whichever order you wish. What are you finding surprisingly easy? Honestly, the biggest challenge that I usually have is to find the right people in the right time. And this sounds such as an obvious problem, but I think as a startup as, as well, and as we can see specifically here in Berlin, there were a few huge funding rounds that really somehow killed the competition around talent. So suddenly if you have like players like Trade Republic, for example, receiving like, sorry to say that, but shitloads of money, like you as a smaller scale up, you have it very hard because they can just come and basically go to your employees and offer them like double of, like just double their salaries. And this is something that can easily like, break you as a startup if you don't manage your culture and make sure to actually take care of the engagement of your employees. I think there's a lot that you can do about it as an employer because it's salary are a big part for employees, but there's other ways how you can encourage your people. It's only one part. It's only one part. If they buy into what you're doing, if they love what they're doing, if they feel they're part of something which is exciting and growing, it's easy to keep them. Exactly. So this is, I think in general, our biggest challenge. And the second part is, yeah, in the end, you need to be like very fast and you constantly need to make short-term versus long-term decisions. Because on the one side, as a venture-funded startup, you're still depending on some fundraise. So you need to make sure that you can show significant uplifts in your numbers from fundraising to fundraising. But then on the other side, some, in, in the stage where we are right now, which is a post-series B, normally you take the funds of a series B to to make your operations more efficiently and like to set yourself up for scaling because in series C you get like way larger number and you need to be able to scale that efficiently and fast. So that's why in the series B after series B, that's at least how I see it. You need to make sure that you set up like an efficient marketing structure and like an efficient scalable campaign structure, for example, that at some point, if you throw a few million into, on your marketing, you need to be able to spend it efficiently. The same goes for tech. There's a lot of stuff you do manually in the background, um, but this doesn't work anymore. Then suddenly if a bull run comes or if your user number increases significantly, this needs to scale. So you need to rethink your technical architecture, your structure. At some point you think about, you still want to live in a monolith or break it out into like more kind of a microservices structure. 
But the same goes like on your design, this goes actually through all customer service. Another great example. At the beginning, you have 10 people sitting there like taking phone calls and it's all very manual, but from one day to another, it just doesn't scale anymore. So you need to think of ways to, to automate that, for example, through self-service, what you can do that, what can you do that the customers don't even need to call you? Or another example is that you can start outsourcing, but you cannot outsource all of them. And then you have to go through different parts of the business and to really make sure that, yeah, you create a scalable business and that if people provide you with some larger funds or larger amounts of funds that you can spend them efficiently. But at the same time, you need to focus on short-term wins to get your numbers up that you actually get more funding. And these trade-offs are sometimes not as easy as I thought it would be, but in the end, you find a balance. You just have to talk a lot to your teams. And usually you can find a good compromise moving forward. But often the teams obviously rather want to go for the long-term solution where you're like, ah, guys, but you still have to focus on those quick wins too. It's, it's the trade-off we always find in trying to scale a company and trying to build a company. In the end, you have two sets of customers. You've yes. got the customers to whom you're providing the service, and then you have your investors. Absolutely. You have to keep them both happy, and it's not easy. What about easy? Is anything easy at the moment? Is anything surprisingly easy, easier than you thought it would be? Yeah, absolutely. Because when I when I came in, I, I always heard that back in the days, at least often the roadmap changes a lot and people would change their mind about priorities and so on. And since I'm coming from larger companies, like both N26 and Zalando are quite large tech companies. I think there's one thing that I learned quite well, and this is like breaking down the vision and the strategy into like junks for your team. Make sure that you have a theme per quarter and that or the strategic themes are clear. Also leave some space for your team still to be creative and to innovate, but at least you need to provide them with a good strategic framework, a longer term roadmap, which is a bit more high level, but then a very clear roadmap for the next three to six months. So everyone is aligned. What I felt in other companies that I worked at, that was always a problem. Like people always had the feeling that they have no clue what we're doing. And in our company, I don't hear that anymore. Like even in our leadership offsites, we have things that we're going to discuss, which are challenges for us, but alignment the direction we're going, the strategy. I never heard from anyone that they don't know it. Like, like we even, we made an exercise two weeks in our leadership offsite where I said, okay, what's our plan for next year? So everyone writes down what are our top three. And I just wanted to see if we're all aligned. And more or less everyone is on the same page. And uh, this was a round of 22 people in our leadership team. So that made me very happy because I think this is the ultimate job of a CEO to make sure that everyone is aligned, what we're doing, what's important, because then people can run in autonomous teams, but, and, and you're not becoming like anarchy, so to say. Yeah, no, we want to be shepherds rather than dictators. I agree. It's a tricky, it's a tricky balance. I think my experience has been though, that the larger the company gets, the harder it will become. I used to say there were three, three sizes of companies, zero to 30 is one type of culture. 30 to 300, you need something very different because you need processes in place yeah. you didn't need when you were only 30. Communication processes, HR things, the stuff that you know, we hate in large organizations because they manage so badly, we do have to apply them in some ways and try to make them work as well as possible. You and I should have a ch conversation once you go past 300 because 300 to 3,000, it's different again. And then you start losing that sense of team and, and purpose that everybody has right now and it becomes something you have to work on. You can maintain it, you absolutely can, but it takes more work. You need more processes, more communication. It, it becomes a bigger part of the CEO's job is to keep everybody in that sense that we're doing something really cool and we're going in a really cool place. So That's really interesting that you said it because the other day someone, someone told me that the more people that you are, the easier the message must be. And uh, there was a really good That's learning right. that I had uh, when I worked in Zalando and I, I was responsible for the apps team because... In the town hall meetings, they always spoke about OKRs and EBITDA and like all these kind of business terms. 
And then I went back to my team and I looked into the faces of 30 developers and I said, okay, who of you knows what OKRs are? And two people raised their hand. As this is very interesting because we operate with OKRs for the past year. And who, who of you knows what EBITDA is or like what even the difference between the revenue and the profit is? And like literally the majority of people did not. So I said, okay, let's forget about all these like business terms now. We actually now speak easy language. And since that, like I explain, I try to explain things in general when I speak to the entire company, like to a 10 year old, because people come from different worlds. And I think specifically experts, they're very deep in their tunnel. I think, what do I win if I use business terms that I use when I speak to my investors and then the whole company follows suit? So what, this is also one thing that I do not like. I really take a lot of time every Monday morning to explain something to them in like very easy language. What are the struggles that we're currently facing? Why do our investors want a certain thing from us and not the other? Why do we prioritize in a certain way to get just the whole company on board? And I think this is also what kept our culture, even though we were scaling from 50 people to now 170 in a very short amount of time, what kept our culture so, so lively and everyone is still so engaged and is really celebrating what we're doing. And you can really feel the spirit. I've never had this in any company. I think it's because everyone feels involved. Everyone really can follow what we're doing. And even if we have to make hard prioritization calls sometimes, this usually exploded in all the companies I've worked and people get super frustrated and demotivated. And um, people write me afterwards on Slack and said, hey, thank you for the introduction. I fully understand. And even though I would like to work on something else, like I'm 100% committed because we really appreciate that you take the time to, to get us on board. And these kind of messages like really keep me going to do, to put so much effort into explaining and explaining. And I think that's important when you scale as well. The message needs to get way easier because people coming from different worlds. I totally agree. Jargon is a communications killer and trying to keep things understandable is super important. And that will become even more important as you get larger. And then also you'll have segmentation of message. There'll be certain things which everybody um, needs to know. And then you'll segment it down or for different groups of people in different areas. Sounds very cool. I'm wondering, because you came in as an outsider, what's it like with the founders? Now, there were three originally, there's two left, is that right? So actually, I have to say the first one, Jörg von Minkwitz, he was the initial CEO. I've never met him. So he lives in Switzerland now, interestingly. But yeah, he left Germany and I'm not sure if he was in Berlin since then, but I've just never met him, which is a shame. I would really like to. And then we have two founders left. One is Jan Goslicki. He is our chief compliance officer and also takes care of customer service. He's still an active member of the management board. And then we had Ben Jones. He was the, the, then the following CEO and CTO. So he was initially the CTO and then also became CEO. And he was the one who handed over to me. And I think this whole transition phase was very interesting to us because he hired me. But then also I came in in my very first weeks. I said, okay, Ben, we need to fix a few things here. So first of all, we need to get fill a few leadership positions. Then we need to get more structure in. We need to do things a lot more differently. And he was very open to it. Because for me, it was also very clear. I made a step down from a company of one and a half thousand people to 50. So I needed to adapt a lot. But on the other side, I also understood that they really need to be open to make a change. Because otherwise, I, I, I really cannot bring my skills in. Great. Okay. So we had a couple of questions, which is helpful. Uh, and we'll go straight into them. There are two good ones. I'll do the second one first. Can non-German citizens become clients of Nuri? What countries are you operating in? Yes, uh, so we actually operate across the EEA, the uh, European Economic Area. However, people that can be onboarded is also dependent on their citizenship. So we actually can onboard everyone whose passport can be uh, verified by IDNOW. That's uh, our partner that we go through with the video KYC. But then also all countries that uh, are accepted by Solaris Bank. So for example, people that, are, that only have a US American passport 
cannot onboard with Nuri as of today. Right. And the second one is an interesting question. It's more a, it's more a general blockchain stroke crypto question, which was about central bank digital currencies. Someone asked about whether there was, I think the word used was disruption, but I will phrase the question differently. Are there opportunities or challenges for Nuri because of the pending arrival of central bank digital currencies? And for those people who don't know what they are, Stablecoins are tokens which are tied to a particular currency, some better than others, it has to be said, where they have exactly the same value and they're kept at that value by the issuers. In this case, there is already a digital yuan. It's been in test for at least three years in China. China is ahead of everybody else in the world. I know the EU is looking at it, but it's some way behind. In the US, there is USDC, which is a, a stablecoin, but it's not operated by the US government. The US government is looking at these. So the question yeah. is more broadly, your thoughts on central bank digital currencies and how Nuri deals with them or will deal with them? On Friday, I spoke on a banking event and Andreas Dombret uh, was speaking there as well. He was a former member of the Deutsche Bundesbank and I think yeah. also supervisory board of the ECB. And he said we're minimum five years away from that, if not longer. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing that was concerning to me is that he also said there is still um, discussions going on how this will be constructed. If it will be, for example, built on Ethereum or if it's built on a on the ledger of the ECB and so on. So I think there's still a lot of questions going on how this will even look like. And then it's also the difference, for example... Which use cases are, is it built for? Is it purely built of facilitating payments and make them faster? Because right now, if you imagine, if you order something in China or in general on the Asian market, through express delivery, it can be at your place maybe in one or two days, but the payment takes seven to 10 days. I cannot understand this in 2021, but it's a different thing. And I also believe, I think the cool thing about also digital currencies, if they're, for example, built on platforms like Ethereum, is also that suddenly money could be theoretically programmable. I think this is just very important because if you're now focusing on a digital currency or a digital euro, which is only facilitating the payment use case, but then it's like not being built on an infrastructure that makes it also programmable and it can interact with smart contracts, for example. I think we're just missing out on a lot of opportunities. I fundamentally believe that why Ethereum is so interesting is like that it allows smart contracts and in the able and in the end can be the oil of a new industry, specifically also facilitating machine-to-machine -machine communication. I drive my electric car to an electric gas station or loading station. And then basically I don't have to do anything anymore. Like my car is uh, communicating with my loading station, I cannot just run away without paying as you can currently do in a gas station because the loading station would check with my car if there's enough ether, for example, on my Ethereum wallet so they can actually interact and like communicate without humans. And I think it's great because it can protect fraud, but then also I think there's they're just not so prone to human failure. We don't know where we are or where we stand in terms of digital currencies, but I'm curious how this will turn out and in what kind of sense we will set them up. But is there a threat for Nuri? I don't believe so, because I think still believe that even if you would have a digital currency from the central bank, that there's still a use case for Bitcoin, for example, because it's how I see it personally, more a digital version of gold. And I had another interesting point when I spoke at this conference, because before me, there was Nuriel, uh, Nuriel Rubini speaking, and he's obviously criticizes Bitcoin or doesn't believe in, in digital assets. But I believe if you speak to a 13-year-old paying a lot of money to buy Nike sneakers for a video game, I think this is the absolute proof that for another generation, digital assets might have even more value than physical assets. And fundamentally, why we believe this piece of metal has value is that because we as a society for hundreds of years agreed to it. I think it was the same when paper money was introduced, that mm -hmm. people were also very skeptical in the beginning. That's so true. I believe it's a, a matter of time and until we really believe that digital um, currencies, cryptocurrencies can serve those use cases as well.
Christina, I, I would have liked to have spent another hour asking you questions about how and where and with what you're doing, everything you're doing. But I'll close with asking you to finish with what you think the future holds the next, say, two to three years for you and for Nuri. Bring more mainstream people to actually start investing. So that's, I think, the ultimate goal where we're going out for and get more people on board that are not investing today, but they actually start because it's so easy. And that, that would be a personal goal for me, for myself. And I think as well as for the company, because that's why we're getting up in the morning. <laughs> Very good. Christina Valkamer from Nuri, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jan, for this nice interview. Fascinating company in a fascinating environment at a really interesting time. I look forward to seeing how the future becomes present and how the industry as a whole develops. For everybody else, thank you all very much, and we'll see you all soon.